My name is Megan Whitson, and my husband and I and our three boys have been attending Rolling Hills for about two years now. In December of 2016, um, I unexpectedly lost my mom. I was 28 weeks pregnant with our third son, Harrison, and um, it was just, it was, it was a pretty tough time. Um, and then I had Harrison on January 31st, and I had had bronchitis prior to having Harrison, and the boys had had it as well. Um, but I had this lingering cough that just wouldn't go away. So I went to the urgent care and um, she said that um, everything sounded great in my lungs, but she wanted to go ahead and get a chest x-ray just because I'd had the cough for so long. And they called me 24 hours later and they said that they had found a shadow. The head of the ER came in along with the doctor that I'd been seeing and then the nurse and they just looked devastated. And he, he told me that um, there was a very large mass in my chest. In that particular moment, um, after the doctors left, the nurse grabbed my hands and she just started praying with me. I'd been diagnosed with stage 2B non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. My regimen was six rounds of chemotherapy um, every three weeks, and then I would go on to have 20 rounds of radiation. All of these um, life-altering experiences were all different opportunities to basically grow my relationship with God. Um, I learned that He's faithful and that He never left me. I went through a lot in a really short amount of time and really there was two different paths I could have probably gone down. I could have, you know, just gotten very angry, but instead I just chose to look at it all as a positive. While we can't go back and make a brand new start, anyone can start now and make a brand new ending. Good morning again. So this morning, I want to dive kind of right in um, to the narrative story that we're in. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open it up to the book of 1 Samuel, um, chapter 17. It's in the Old Testament um, part of our narrative, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. And so we, we land in, in this context of a story, and we, and we divide First and Second Samuel in half because we think, well, that's just easier to find reference points, and it's just easier for us to look up different stories and passages, and of course the kingdom changes hands in the middle of that. But ultimately, this was just one big narrative from a prophet who was called by God to equip people with knowledge of God. And when you think about the fact that that is here written down for us and preserved for thousands and thousands of years later, generations later, we're opening up a word that was preserved for us from the prophet so that those two things can be true. So that the word of God and the character of God and the nature of God can be imparted to the people of God so that we would know how to respond to God in attitudes of worship and submission and also fellowship and relationship. And, and that's why we get these details. It's why we get these stories and not a single word of it is wasted because it's there for a reason to impact our lives. And so we, we open up and we look at First Samuel chapter 17, which is a familiar story. It's been depicted in lots of Sunday school lessons and Bible stories through the years and Bible studies through the years for both children and adults. It's even been acted out by cartoon vegetables and we can watch and learn like the whole narrative of the story. And we, we find out that it's, there's a lot more than just um, the simple once upon a time that we may have gathered as kids. And here it is. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamine, which literally means the edge of blood. 
Israel is in between a rock and a very hard place as this seafaring people who lived on the coastal lands, Philistines with their mighty armies, made way to the shore and headed east so that they could purposefully and methodically attack Israel. And Israel is a land full of both mountain ranges and valleys. And so these two groups of people set up on the edge of two mountain ranges with a valley between them. It says, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So they're at a standoff. You got one army on this mountain and another army on this mountain with a valley in between them, and they're both just playing an incredibly difficult game of chicken, waiting for the other army to attack. Because if the other army decided to attack, they would have to go down their mountain into the valley and then up your mountain towards you, and you having the high ground could stomp them out before they got there. But neither army would budge. So it says in verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. And a lot of times in Scripture, we look at the English language, and it helps us by pre-translating any of the difficult measurements that we don't know. This must be like the metric system or something. I don't know, because I'm not even uh, sure of what the amount is. Six cubits and a span. It literally meant like nine feet, nine inches. But then we've got these other translations of Scripture. So this comes from the Masoretic text where we get the Hebrew Bible and what Jewish people are looking at, which could be an exaggeration of the height. The Dead Sea Scrolls and other scholars named Josephus, they say that it's actually four cubits in a span, which would put him around six feet nine inches. Still a really, really big dude. Says he's had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Even the armor that he wore weighed almost 150 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Says Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. This was actually a common form of battle in ancient times. Where two armies that were standing off against one another, each side would send out their very best champion. And those two champions would battle it out to the death. And you can imagine how little bloodshed happened. Only one person had to die in order to save the people. Oh my goodness, there's the New Testament. We could just skip to the book of Matthew. Only one person had to die in this type of battle. So it seems, let's just play the odds, like a really, really good idea. Instead of all of our sons dying in bloodshed, potentially, let's just send out one guy and hope that he is the victor. We've got a 50-50 chance, right? Yes, until you see that the other champion from the other team is as big and bad and scary as Goliath is. It says, then the Philistine said, this day... I defy, verse 10, the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the other, all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The people were scared. And you look back at Saul, the scripture tells us in 1 Samuel 9 that the reason he was chosen as king in the first place was because of how sharp and how good looking and how, how tough he was. The scripture says that he stood a head taller than all of the other Israelites. Saul was the man. 
And if Saul was a head taller than all of the other Israelites, then he was the champion that they should have been sending forward that day. But the Bible says that he, along with all of the rest of Israel, was terrified and dismayed. And then you get David. David, who last week we learned was the youngest of eight boys. David, who last week we learned his dad didn't even bring him in the house when the prophet came because he was sure it couldn't be him. It was certainly going to be one of his older seven brothers that was announced king. We read these gospel-centered words in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that says, The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at appearance and height, but the Lord rejects that. He looks at the heart. That's good news for us. God's after something different. God is preserving for himself something different. And so that kid comes on the scene. It says, now David was the son of the Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem and Judah. We lent them in chapter 16. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. So Jesse's aging. His three oldest sons had followed Saul to the ward. The firstborn was Eliab, and the second Abinadab, and the third Shema. All these guys are in battle. Which means all these guys are lined up on the hill, looking down the valley of Allah, looking back up the other side, square-eyed with the Philistines, shaking in their boots just like Saul and just like the remainder of their comrades. It says David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul. You know, he's a musician and he's playing for the king to tend his father's sheep, Bethlehem, this shepherd boy and also a harp player. It says for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand, defying the army of Israel and daring them to send their champion forward so that he could win. It says, Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. Jesse, in his old age, just wanted to know that things were going well. It says they were with Saul and the men of Israel in the valley of Allah fighting against the Philistines. He was mistaken because they weren't fighting against the Philistines. They were shaking in their own armor, scared of the Philistines. And it says early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, uh, another keeper. He loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies. He ran to the battle lines and he asked his brothers how they were. Can you imagine? How's it going? What can I do? Can I wipe your wounds? Can I, can I shine your spear? Can I help you in this battle that you're engaged in? And what he found was his brothers standing on the sidelines afraid of what they had encountered. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion, verse 23, from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Who's your Goliath? What is it that you are usually afraid of? What, what is it that literally has you quaking in your boots? As the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man, verse 25, keeps coming out. He comes out to defy Israel. And then they, they say this, this like, hey, if uh, motivating, hey, why don't you go do it? Why don't you go do it? No, why don't you go do it? Oh, no, you're better than I. Why don't you go do it? Because here's what's going to happen if you do. It says, do you see how this man keeps coming out? But the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Y'all sign me up. 
put me down right now. Like, uh, great wealth. I've already got a wife, so we don't have to worry about that one. But great wealth and make me exempt from taxes forever. Let's just do that. He says, David asked the men standing near him, wait, what's going to be done? And what's what's going to happen to the one who, who fights this guy? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In verse 27, they reported to him what he'd been saying and told him, this is what's going to be done for the man who kills him. And he gets in a little squamish with his brothers. He gets in a little fight. They blame him for being prideful and arrogant and coming to the battle lines. And he hears what's going to happen. And he decides that he will, verse 32, he will go out and fight him. And Saul's freaked out in the moment. He's like, well, if you're going to fight him, you're going to need some armor. And so he decides to upload his own armor onto David, which can you imagine Saul standing ahead and shoulders above all of the rest of Israel? And David's just this shepherd boy, still young by any measurable account. And so the armor, of course, didn't fit him. He couldn't walk out with 125 pounds of armor. He probably couldn't fit into that armor. And so he says, I cannot go in these, verse 39. NIV Bible translations say, because I am not used to them. Other translations of the Bible says, I have not proved them. I have not tested them. You know that ultimately what, what, we, what we really hope, and, and David writes it in Psalm chapter 26, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and heart. So you look at this great battle of this, this, this great enemy We're worried about whether or not the armor has been tested, and what we really discover is that God's people are being tested. How faithful will you be, and how bold will you be, and how courageous will you be in a standoff against your enemy? So he does. If you skip down to verse 40, it says, Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, and he put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now, let's not look at sling as if it's some little toy that a kid may play, like, you know, a little fork, and you got a rubber band, and you pull it back, and the little pebble in the middle goes flying forward. This is like, this is like an artillery sling. It's two pieces of leather strap that you can wrap around a rock, and when you, you get this kind of like force of sheer momentum, and I don't know how long I'm going to do this. I figure until it looks awkward, but he's swinging it back and forth like with all the power in his might, and he lets one of the straps go, and that hurls the rock to whatever target you're trying to hit. That's the kind of sling that these guys use. In ancient warfare, there were basically three different types of soldiers. You had the cavalry. Now, those were the guys that got to ride on the horses and pull all the chariots, and then you've got the infantry. Those were the foot soldiers. Those were the ones with like the swords and the javelins and the spears, and they would, they would walk out and literally finally engage in some hand-to-hand combat. That's what the Philistine did. Goliath was out in the middle of the valley waiting for Israel to send down their best guy. He was hand-to-hand combat prepared. And then you had the artillery. These were the guys in, 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 the, in the very back. They were the one with the bows and arrows who would shoot over and above the infantry to strike out as many as they could in the front lines before the infantry would come in and attack. These are the guys with the giant slingshots that would hurl these rocks at their enemies. And, and David knew artillery. It's not a toy slingshot. It's a devastating weapon. Some forensic scientists have told us that it would have the impact. A really good artillery expert, a really good archer would have the same kind of impact as a 45-millimeter handgun. That these guys could hit a bird, a tiny little bird, in flight. They were excellent marksmen. And you give them a target that's 6.9 to 9 feet tall, Goliath is a really big target. And we look at this kid that we, we pre-label as some sort of underdog 
when he was an excellent, excellent shot. So he grabbed these five stones and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd bag with a sling in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. It says, meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him, that's another part of the story, he kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and over and saw that he was a little more than a boy glowing with health and handsome and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. David didn't shrink. He said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You know how the story goes. As the Philistine moved closer to David to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, 45 millimeter gun right there. And the giant fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed, a little shepherd boy, not even wearing full armor, with nothing but a slingshot in his hand, triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, his own sword, drew it from the sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, verse 51, they turned and ran. Who's your Goliath? It's probably not a six foot nine or nine foot nine giant standing out of the room. 1960 in a medical journal, speculation uh, came kind of full circle about Goliath's height. They labeled him as a man who suffered from acromegaly. It's a benign tumor on the pituitary gland, which, which, which forces the growth hormone to continually release in a person's life, which is why we get the condition known as giantism. Andre the Giant had that acronym on his pituitary gland. Other people have had it throughout history, and people with it tend to have double vision and be profoundly nearsighted. And so we see this, this giant of a man calling for David to come closer and closer. We see a man who was prepared to tear a boy limb from limb, but who may have not been able to see from a distance that rock coming. We see this enemy being led out by someone else in his own vulnerability, and yet the people are scared. And so we ask ourselves, like, what, what are the things that we're scared of, and, and where in the world are we finding strength? Who, what, where is your Goliath? What's your enemy? What about this world is taunting you and, and, and making you afraid of the promises that God has for you, and who and what and where is your strength? See, I submit that our, our bully may not be as big and as bad as we perceive them to be. We've got this guy that everybody is afraid of, and, and I'm wondering if, in the same manner that we assume that the Masoretic text may have exaggerated to some degree the actual height of Goliath from the Scriptures, 
have we somehow exaggerated and exasperated the, the size of our problems in our mind to say that they are way bigger than they actually are? We don't just exaggerate the, the size of the problem. We often extrapolate the worst possible outcome for whatever those problems are. When you're a teenager, you probably said these words, my mom is going to kill me. No, she's not. She's not going to risk running to jail. She's not going to risk being a headline and getting the death penalty because she offed her kids. I mean, we know that that does happen. It's happened in our nation's history, and these are the, the craziest, most outlandish stories, but a D on a paper, she's not going to take you out for that. <laughs> we look at our problems, and, and we know that they're big, and we get all freaked out about the worst possible solutions for any of the ones that we have as if the giant that stands before us is going to take us out. It says the Philistine looked over at David and saw that he was a little, little more than a boy. And it says in verse 43 that the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in our battles and our fights and we make it so individualistic and we put all of the pressure back on ourselves and we forget that our enemy doesn't just hate you. The bully hates who you stand for. Jesus said in John chapter 7, the world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Jesus warned us that people would be against us, but that it was okay because they were first against him. It's not just our enemies standing in our face trying to take us down. It's our enemies standing in the face of God trying to take him down. And we would do really, really well in the face of whatever battle lines we're drawing and whatever valley we're staring into, knowing that the enemy stands on the other side to look at that enemy and to realize that that enemy is not out for our blood. He's out for the blood that was already shed so that we may have a perfect relationship with the great God of this universe when we're afraid of our bully, realizing that it's not just us he's coming after. It's who we stand for that's ultimately under attack. It's this word that's under attack. It's this will that's under attack. It's people not wanting to admit and submit to the fact that there's a great God in this universe who created us and has a purpose for us, and that includes boundaries for us to live by and when we feel so pressure point, name a state. Name a state that's not under some sort of pressure right now to legalize some sort of thing or to illegalize some sort of thing. You can name it and, and, and know that it's ultimately not people that are on the attack. It's the God of this universe that is not just on the offense but on the defense against the attacks of the enemy in our world. Your bully doesn't just hate you. Don't take it personally. He hates the God that you serve. And if we're really, 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 really going to rely on him, it means trusting in the things that he's already done as much as we trust in the things that he still can do and is capable of. We ask ourselves this question when we read the David and Goliath story because the idea of David and Goliath is synonymous with an underdog story. Like we use it as a metaphor right now. Oh yeah, David and Goliath, that's the classic underdog story. But then we sit back and read scripture and we understand who this kid, was he really the underdog? Was he really the weakling that we want to portray him to be so that the story sounds that much better? Oh, a child came out and with his little toy that his dad carved for him, he beat the mighty giant. David was a warrior himself. 
And he tells Saul, if you read through that scripture, hey, listen, I've already killed a lion and a bear. I struck it down. And we know how that would have happened. That David, looking out across the flock, seeing the bear coming or seeing the lion about to take part of his sheep, he grabbed that sling. And with perfect aim, he struck down that lion so hard that the thing fell over. And before the lion could even know what hit him, there was David already there with the sword in hand, ready to strike the thing and kill him dead. David knew what he was doing, and he knew not only what he was capable of, but he knew what the great God of this universe was capable of, and he was going to go in the strength that he had. It says in verse 37, The Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Why? Because he knew where his strength was, and he knew how to fight. It wasn't luck. Certainly the power of God. But David knew what he was doing. And he also knew in whom he trusted. He wasn't the underdog. He was perfectly equipped, along with half of the rest of that army, to take that giant down. Only only the rest of the army was terrified to do it. And so what made David different? It wasn't confidence in the skills that God had given him. There were some other guys who were confident in the skills that God had given him. It was confidence in the providence of God. In a God in this universe who was not going to allow, he was going to let his people fall, but he wasn't going to allow his name to be defiled by that Philistine. Sometimes we're standing on the edge of our mountain looking down at the depth of the valley, spying our enemy on the other side, and we're begging God, oh, I just need more strength. And until you give me more strength, I'm going to stand over here and shake. Oh, I just need more power. And until you give me more power, I'm going to shrink back here in fear. And maybe the great God of this universe is looking at go in the power that I already gave you. I said that to Gideon. He looks at a guy that was from a really weak clan in the book of Judges. He stares at him and he calls him to battle and he says, you're going to go and you're going to fight and you're going to take down the Midianites. Go in the strength you have. Not go in the strength that I'm about to give you if you'll just trust me, but go in the strength that you already have that's based in the promises that I've already given. Go in the strength you have. Saul and his army didn't need God to show up with some newfangled invention that was going to allow them to take down the giant in their life. They already had what they needed. They had just chosen not to trust it. And I feel that way in my own life. Isaiah 41.10 says, do not fear for I'm with you. I'm already there. Do not be dismayed for I'm your God. I'm already him. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Sometimes we're begging God to show up with some newfangled miracle and he's already provided us with the strength that we need to stand on. David grabs five small, smooth stones from the riverbank. You know, not a word in Scripture is wasted ever. Not, not, a, not a single word, not a single detail that we're given, not a single number that comes across these pages is wasted in, 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 in any respect. For generations, the people that heard this story, that knew that David went to the river and picked up five smooth stones, they would have heard that number five and they would have associated it with a really special number. They would have associated it with the law of God, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when the great God of this universe revealed himself to people. And it didn't take two stones or three stones or four stones 
stones to kill the giant. It only took one stone so that future generations, those people that came after the people in this moment, could look that, yeah, God gave him him, us himself through a law, but it only took one to take down the giants in our lives. And we know that that one is Jesus Christ. The, even the, the number matters. And so David picks up these five stones from a brook. And that word is the, the Hebrew word nakal. And it literally means to possess or to inherit. We already own exactly what we need through the law of God and the word of God and the presence of God in our lives to stand strong against any enemy that we could ever possibly fight. So David grabbed up the, the promises of God and the presence of God, and it only took one Savior from God to make him victorious in that moment. Amen. So he hurled it, and the giant fell, so that everybody there that day and everybody there for all generations would know for sure not that there's a hero in Israel, not that there's a, a crazy underdog kid who can slay giants in Israel, but ultimately so that they would know that there is a God in Israel. And it didn't take skilled artillery. It took courage. Our, our faith in God demands not that we speak the words, but that we act on them, that, that we Live out our faith in courage. The book of Hebrews says that my righteous one will live by faith. And the great God of this universe says, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. I don't know how big Israel's army was that day. I don't know how tall Saul stood that day. But they stood on a hill of battle facing a giant shrinking back from having courage and faith in the promise of the God who had brought them to that valley. And David does us a favor because he confidently steps forward to the giant in his life and he says, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to face off with you and I'm going to eliminate you. You're not even going to be that scary presence in my life because you have not defied me. You have not challenged me. You have not hurt, because you have defied my God. And everybody's going to know today that he's real. You know, the problems in our lives, the difficulties that we face, the challenges that we have, they don't need more of us. They, they need more of God. Israel didn't need more artillery experts that day. They needed just one who had confidence in God. My problems don't need more books, more strategies, more ideas, more, more solutions. That they need more of God. David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a javelin and a sword and a spear. And ultimately, that giant was capable of literally tearing David from limb to limb. But David said, I come at you 
not with my slingshot and my five smooth stones, but I come at you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He says in verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And the Lord saves his people. And the whole world's going to know that there's a God in Israel. That's why Jesus came. So that the whole world would know that there's a God in Israel. And that's why he left the throne room of heaven to become human like us, so that the whole world would know that there's a God in Israel. That's why he died a criminal's death on a cross, so that the whole world would know that there's a God in Israel. That's why we can stand here and sit and sing songs and read words so that the whole world would know that there's a God in Israel. That's why Rolling Hills Community Church exists to let people know that there's a God in Israel. That's why this campus exists so that this neighborhood will know that there's a God in Israel. That's why there are ministry teams and opportunities to serve. That's why there's Justice and Mercy International so that we can go to the ends of the world so that everybody will know that there is a God in Israel. That's why we don't want you coming and sitting in this church every single week because it's a fun place to go and it makes you feel better about your spirituality to check a church box once a week because we want the world to know that there's a God in Israel. That's why people are invited to gather together in home groups and study his word together so that the people around you would know that there's God in Israel. That's why we raise our kids in church to come and to be a part of this environment so that they too would get to know that there's a God in Israel. And that's why the Lord allows difficulties in our lives. We just spoke about it last month when we were talking about leveraging our pain. That's why those giants confront us so that we would have an opportunity to stand up like David with a sling in our hand full of the rocks of the word of God and the Savior that's in our lives and proclaim that there really is a God in Israel. And when people look at the way that we handle those problems and respond to those problems and stand up bravely against those problems and refuse to shrink back and be killed over by those problems is so that everybody who witnesses the fact that we, who have no business facing giants, defeat them in the first place so that they would know that there's a God in Israel and it's a God who saves his people. That's what we want the world to know. And they're not going to know it if we're comfortable. They're not going to know it if our lives are really, really easy. They're not going to know it if we somehow in our own strength stand a head taller above everyone else and that yet in fear of an enemy every time they attack. They're going to know it if we're willing to face those giants because we know the God of Israel, the one who gave us this word, the one who gave us his law, the one who gave us his presence, and ultimately the one who gave us his son to sacrifice his life in our place to square off in the forehead of our great enemy and take him out. I don't, I don't know who your Goliath is. I don't know how big and how nasty and how hairy that problem feels. but I know that there's a God in Israel. And I think some people, maybe even in this room, have had a whole lot more than just 40 days of attacks. 40 days is a long time. It's like a month and a half. It's longer than whole 30. <laughs> you caught that at the very beginning. What did Jesse tell his son to do? Like, I read the details in the Bible. He wanted them to take bread and cheese, neither of which you get to eat on whole 30. So he calls his boy to go and ultimately fight a battle that 
everybody else was scared of. One that had been drawn for not one, not two, not 20, but 40 days. And I say this to a people who might have been fighting a battle for 40 years. There's a God in Israel. Um, I say this to a people who might have been afraid for a whole lot longer than a month and a half. And fighting up against um, <laughs> literally an uphill valley of a battle for a lot more than just 40 days of life against a giant that seems way bigger than 6'9", or 7'9", or 8'9", or 9 feet tall. It doesn't matter how big the giant is. You're still scared. You know, perception is 10 tenths of reality. Goliath could have been 4 feet tall, but he still defied the God of Israel. And everyone was afraid of him. So some of you look around and, and and you think your problem is big, but you know everybody else around you thinks it's really, really small, and that makes you just feel weaker because I'm looking at this problem that really shouldn't be a problem. I'm looking at this giant that really shouldn't be a giant, and I'm afraid of this thing that everybody else just feels like they could lick in a heartbeat, but yet here I am. And what we're invited to do um, is to gather up the words of God and gather up the faith that we have in him and courageously go in the strength that we've already been given from a Savior that has already been poured out for us. So that you and everybody else around you would get a chance to know that there's a God in Israel. When your giant attacks you, when your problem confronts you, it is an affront against Almighty God. And that means that when you courageously stand in the face of it and defeat it, it is to the glory of Almighty God. A guy named Louis Giglio wrote a really incredible book. He says, um, it's called Goliath Must Fall. It's about the giant. He says, if our only motivation for taking down a giant is our freedom then we won't have all the motivation that's needed. If David's desire to take down Goliath that day was only so that he could be a hero, he would not have had the strength he needed. If David's desire today, that day, was only to rescue his brothers and to stand out above Israel and to free the people that were standing on that hillside, then he wouldn't have had the motivation that was needed. It says God's glory is also the motivation for us to walk in victory over the giants in our lives. And sometimes we sit around and ask ourselves, well, why don't I, in my faith in Jesus, have the courage that I need? Why don't I have the fight in me that it's going to take? Why don't I have the strength that Scripture says I have? Well, it might be because we're after our own glory. Because freedom is our motivation. Our, our reputation is our motivation. Ease and pain-free life is our motivation. But it's when God's glory is our motivation that we, we stand victorious. David may have rested in five stones of Torah strength, 
but only took one to defeat the giant. And it's for his glory that we trust in the one who can defeat our giants. And so we ask. We ask this morning as you write down in the margin of your piece of paper, like what's the giant in your life? What's the thing that you're afraid of in your life? What's the confrontation or the conflict or the difficulty or the, the, the lack that you are terrified of in your life? And, and we say that maybe but for the glory of God, will you finally find the courage and the strength to go up against that battle and be not the underdog, but the mighty warrior who can take it out? It's kind of what I believe. It's what I think that scripture teaches us. David, this kid that ultimately became a man after God's own heart, wasn't confident in the ability that he had, and bless it, he had ability. Fought a bear and a lion. You tell me if you've done that. But he was confident in the God of Israel, and we can be too. Six feet, seven feet, nine feet, ten feet, four and a half feet, doesn't matter. Whatever the giant is in your life, you can confidently stand against it if it's for the glory of God that you desire it. And so maybe today's a day for some of you to name it and say to God, okay, this is my battle. This is what I confess to being afraid of. This is where I lack courage. Just as a, as a response to the Lord, would you speak it? The giant in the story had a name. Or maybe today's a day for somebody to finally stop being scared on the battle lines and to step down into the river and to, to grab those smooth stones. You know what made them smooth? Friction. The rough sand on the bottom of the riverbed and the rushing water rubbing up against them crafted smooth stones. It's the friction and the difficulty that shapes us into being the people that God wants us to be. So maybe it's time to lean down and gather up what the Word of God says is true and be willing to stand and fight. Maybe it's not naming a giant that the Lord is calling you to do, but maybe it's professing your willingness to fight him regardless of the outcome. I don't know what the battle is or what the enemy is, but I do know that he's after more than just you. He's after our God. Wants to shave off part of his good reputation so that other people don't get to know through you that there's a God in Israel. But your courage and your bravery and your willingness to stand in front of those giants is an opportunity to say, yeah, there is. And he's on my side. Like, so maybe that's an even better response today to, to look at the great God of Israel and to say, I, I trust you and I'm willing to put my faith in you and I'm willing to express my desire to follow you because I believe in you and I, I get that you're for me. Maybe your fear isn't just your giant. Maybe your, your fear is that there is somehow not a God who really loves you and is, is for you. And to that, I just say he gave his only son. And there is no greater outpouring of love for you than that. And to those who would come to him and freely confess their sins and, and say, yep, I've got giants and demons and all kinds of difficulties in my life and I want you to be Lord over it all, 
That's an opportunity. So we pray today, God. And we sing this song as a a victory cry, as a response to you, um, as an indication of our trust in you. We tell you today that we need more strength, but we also ask that you today, God, would help us to trust in the strength that we already have in the promises that you've already made and in the reality of who you already are in our lives to know that however big we perceive our giant to be, he's not bigger than you. He is not bigger than you. You're a God who can be trusted and we are warriors who can live our lives in such a way that other people get to know that you're real. And that's what we desire as individuals and also as a collected body of believers today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray together.